Uh, if you've got a Bible on you, why don't you grab it? Uh, we've been making our way through Acts uh, over this last little while, and um, we're kind of moving steadily through the kind of early part of that book. If you've never read your way through Acts before, uh, it's a long book, all right? Uh, it, it's a, a huge kind of narrative, long chapters, lots going on. It's not as if it's one of those books where you kind of, if you've ever done a Bible reading plan and you end up, you know, in like First and Second Chronicles for a while, you're like, oh, goodness. You wake up every day and go, no. This is, Acts is not one of those books. The narrative moves quickly. There's tons going on. It seems like it's incredible stuff at every kind of turn of the page. And we've been making our way through the early chapters. We're about to finish uh, the kind of first block. We've broken it down into different kind of sections. So today is going to be the last one in that first block. And it's actually a really long passage, so we've kind of broken it down today into kind of two shorter parts of what is a really long block. So we're in Acts chapter 6 from verse 8. The actual total of what we're, we're, we're kind of basing it from is 6, 8 through to 8, 2. But we're going to read 6, 8 to 15 and then 7, 53 to 8, 2. So this is God's word. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen. And brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then moving on to 7 verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. When he had said this, he fell asleep. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. And we thank God for his word that still speaks to us today. So as I said, we've been making our way kind of through Acts over the last five weeks or so. And this is kind of the last session in that first block, okay? That first block that has been all about Jerusalem, all right? The start of the church coming alive starts in a very specific place. And there's kind of two ways of, of kind of looking at its spread, right? One is that the spread goes from there towards the end of the earth, right? That's kind of the practical application. The other way is that it goes from there to Rome, the cultural center of the world 
world at that time, okay? But this first block that we finish today is what happens at home in Jerusalem where the church starts. The church was ready to expand outwards, okay? No matter what way you look at it, to the ends of the earth, to Rome, you know, whatever way you want to see that, okay? It was ready to go, but not quite yet. Almost ready. Waiting a key moment. And this was it. And in lots of ways, this passage today, which, as I said, is a really long passage. We've only, we've only been able to read kind of several blocks of it, right? It's really all about story. I know you struggle to believe that, right? You just heard that somebody got stoned, right? But the passage is really all about story. And when you think about it, right, there's nothing really more human than story, is there? To be human is to be part of a story. I'm not just talking about the storied lives of icons and celebrities, key public figures, writers, characters, right? I'm not just talking about them. I'm talking about all of us. We all inhabit story. Before I was born, my mom had quite a number of miscarriages before I was conceived. My big sister is five years older than me, and in that five years, there was an awful lot of pain. Uh, and so whenever I, she was pregnant with me, she was put on bed rest in hospital. Now in that days, that meant you actually went to a hospital from like week 20 right through to the end of the pregnancy. She was in a hospital bed for all of those 20 weeks, which for me means that I can quantifiably tell all of my brothers and sisters that I was obviously the most loved, right? Obviously. And, and when she was there, it just so happened that Jamie Dornan's dad was the doctor that looked after her. This is a proper Northern Ireland story now, right? We got Jamie Dornan. Soon we're going to be talking about some other characters, right? But she was looked after that whole time. And here's the thing. I say that today because that story was with me before I was born, right? That this was the context. This was the context for which you were born, David. This is the context for which you came in to the earth. The story was with me before I was born. We enter story before we're born. Like our son Levi will always be a child of the pandemic in 2020, right? As we think back, it will be one of the things that happened in this kind of crazy period of time that we've all lived through. A lockdown baby. We all enter story before we're born. And equally, we will still inhabit story even after we leave this earth. It's not like we exit the realm of story just because we die. Like we continue to be talked about. Stories are told about phrases, things we did from the past, right? They live on after we die. That's the power of story. The thing is, story has always had parts. Why so often when you look at the history books, those who have wanted to seize control of nations or peoples, they very often tried to seize control also of their narratives, of their stories, haven't they? It's why writers, creatives, artists, musicians, all of that, they've always been a danger to oppressive political regimes because of their ability to speak to the story of a people. And right at this moment, right, that we fall in in Acts chapter 6, 7, and 8. We're in this developing picture of the church alive. 
The focus is on Stephen, right? He's very much the focus of these three chapters. Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew, all right, which means that he was a Jew living in the Greek world, probably spoke Greek and to some extent uh, had a Greek way of life, right? He, was, he lived out aspects of both Jewish religious traditions, but also aspects of Greek culture, right? And if you know anything about Jewish religious traditions, they were like very outside of what Greek culture did. But these guys kind of lived in these two worlds and were with him because the new story has taken a hold of his life. Jesus has got a hold of this man's life. It's got him right at the center, and what has happened is a radical reordering of his life. And yet, the radical reordering by the end of today's passage will lead to him being stoned. And in his place, he will forever be known as the first martyr in the new church. What do we learn from this today? It's not an easy passage to read. As we read it out loud this morning, you know, you're reading those words kind of shuddering a little bit as you think about what that would have meant for him as a person. What can we learn from this today? Well, I want us to see today that Stephen shows us what it means for God, our God, to be in both story and storyteller. He shows us what it means for God to be in both story and the teller. The first of those is the story. Listen to these verses again. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. They couldn't stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like that of an angel. So the context, right, for where we are today is one where we don't actually know the details of what he was saying, right? So he gets accused, but we don't actually know what he was saying. The Bible doesn't tell us what he said previously. And in short, it kind of appears that Stephen had been teaching, performing signs and wonders. Incredible, by the way, that that's happening, all right? When you think about it, already those that are not apostles are performing signs and wonders, right? So you can't miss that on your way through, okay? That's what's been going on. And as he has, he's been offending some people, right? We kind of get that gist. And in some ways, it's not surprising that some people are offended, right, by some of the teaching of the early church. It's thought that there were around 400 different synagogues in Jerusalem at this time, right? It's kind of like sometimes when you drive through those kind of small provincial towns. Like my family, when I was born, we lived in Killalay. Killalay is tiny. There are two Presbyterian churches. Why are there two in a tiny town? They couldn't agree on something at some point, so now there's two, right? So it's not surprising that in some ways somebody gets offended in 400 synagogues in one city. They all have their own emphases. They all have their own makeup. And so he's offended some people. And at first, the passage tells us that they try to argue with him, right? But that doesn't work. He's too sharp. He's too smart. They kind of don't get the better of them. So next, they accuse him of blasphemy. And finally, they just seize him. They just get a mob and they seize him. 
And the thing is, right, that the accusations were two things. They were first false, but also they were angled. They had an angle, right? It wasn't just, we don't like this guy, he's a jerk, right? They were false, but they had an angle. And because in the context of the time, right, the angle that they took was serious. It was serious business to say controversial things about the temple and about the law, right? We get in this moment, there are some things that it's just very difficult to talk about without getting in deep trouble, right? Whatever your opinion, there are some things that right now are just very, very hard to speak about. And in those days, in the religious culture of the time in Jerusalem, two of those things were the temple and the law. John Stott uh, comments that nothing was more sacred to the Jews and nothing more precious than their temple and the law. You cannot talk about the temple and the law with any form of challenge. And so he's pulled up before the Sanhedrin and he's, he's asked questions, right? And he's told to answer his accusers. The thing for me that strikes me though, we haven't read it this morning, okay? It's the large block of text that essentially makes up Acts chapter 7, right? That is basically Stephen's speech, okay? And the thing about it is, right, that's kind of unique about it, which is remarkable to me when I read it, is it's not exactly a defense, right? I mean, I don't know if you've ever watched kind of court cases online or whatever, but it's kind of a bit of your responsibility to answer the accusations that come your way, right? But Stephen doesn't really do it. It makes up the longest speech in the book of Acts, and he doesn't really defend himself. How incredible is that? He says lots it turns out, however, that it's not exactly an attempt to wriggle out or rebuff or anything like that. The thing is, though, in the history of the church, Stephen's speech hasn't exactly always been well received, right? Lots of people haven't thought of it that well down the years. Many writers have called it rambling, dull, and incoherent, right? I can just see the movie posters now, you know, like where it says, Stephen's speech, rambling, the Guardian, right? That's kind of how some people think about it, right? They don't love it. George Bernard Shaw, who was an Irish writer and a critic in 1912, went even further when he called Stephen a quite intolerable young speaker going on a tactless and conceited bore, right? It sounds like some people's PhD masters. Anyway, it's just brutal, right? An intolerable young speaker, a tactless bore. It's like the Gordon Ramsay of biblical commentary. The thing is, though, right, that misses the point. To say that misses the point. And it makes me think of my daughter, Elle. Elle's got this thing, right, where you will arrive in our kitchen or our living room and there'll be some sort of disastrous mess all over the place, right? There'll be water spilled all over the floor or there'll be like felt tips all over the gaff or whatever. And you'll come in and you'll be like, whoa, 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 Elle, what's going on here, right? You go full parent mode on her to which she, you, she'll kind of just stop what she's doing, look up and go, Dad, you see, these birds of prey here, right? Well, they've kind of, well, they've, um, they've, they've, uh, they've sort of been trying to get back to their nest. And this, um, that anaconda over there, that anaconda actually tried to catch one of them. And then they bit them, but now they're a family. And you're just like, what? What, what has just happened? I just want to know why there's water on the ground. And now somehow I've been enlisted in some story about birds of prey, an anaconda, a polar bear, and deer only knows what else. Because it's not a defense. She doesn't care about defending herself because she's so absorbed by and invested in the story that she's playing out in that moment of time 
that it's more important to her to explain the story that she's in than it is to defend herself and the mess that she's made. And that's basically Stephen here. He doesn't try to take on the legal accusations that are in front of him. He's not interested in that. He's offended some of the most significant aspects of Jewish religious culture, the temple and the law, God's house and God's word. That's why it's called blaspheming, right? And he's not interested in defending himself. In his defense, he invites them into the story to see as he sees And he speaks to some massive figures, right? To massive accusations. He speaks about some massive figures in Jewish cultural history. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, and Solomon. And using their lives, he tries to tell the story. So the thing is, when it comes to the temple, the problem was that they thought God was so totally associated with the temple that its existence guaranteed their protection, right? So its destruction essentially meant that God had abandoned them. This sense that as long as I have the temple, he is with us, right? That's kind of how they felt. So any talk about the temple being done away with was like deeply insecure for them. In many ways, how much has that felt like the last year that we've lived through? As long as I have this, I'll be all right. As long as I can do that, we'll be okay. And as each of the securities is stripped away from our lives, how do we feel deeply undermined, adrift, without an anchor. The thing is though that long before this point in time, the people of God, the great figures of the Old Testament, they never imagined that God just lived in a temple. So when he talks about Abraham, right? It was God's initiative in Abraham's life. It was God who appeared, spoke, sent, promised, punished, and rescued. When he talks about Joseph, it was utterly astonishing that God would work even in Egypt, right? Egypt was like the worst place. It's incredible that God might work there. In Moses' story, it turns out that the holy ground was outside the holy land, right? In other words, wherever God is, is holy. In fact, in Moses' story, that part of it where the burning bush and God speaks from the burning bush, he never spoke like that in the temple in the record of the Old Testament. And then in the story of David and Solomon, most explicitly of all, he quotes Isaiah 66 in saying that God is not confined to live in the places we build. He's the creator of heaven and earth. How could we ever hold him in bricks and mortar? To the temple, it's not like God was ever confined to live in a place. And to the law, You'll notice if you read that speech later on, he spends most of the time, most of the block of text on the part about Moses, right? That's the kind of vast majority of what he says. Moses, the law giver, perhaps he's just trying to leave them in no doubt of his love and respect and knowledge of his life and significance. He's trying to tell them, look, I love Moses. I respect Moses. I know his story. Here's the thing, though. Stephen is up before the courts that day because of what he'd been teaching. And it turns out that really he'd been teaching Jesus. Because he's pointing out that in Jesus we find the replacement for them both. Jesus himself in Matthew 12 will say, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. Jesus himself in Matthew 5 said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, there is no need for the temple anymore. For my presence is now in you. You are the temple. 
And I have fulfilled, completed, replaced the law. Now it's my way. It's not law anymore. It's my way. You see, the truth was, the truth is, that there is nowhere you need to be to find him. There's nowhere you need to go to meet him. There's no holy, holy space that he resides in. And there is nothing else that you need to do. It's grace alone. You have nothing to prove. There's no record you need to have. There's no background you need to come from. There's no test that you have to pass. If you have asked Jesus into your life and received the Holy Spirit, the gift he gave, the gift we talked about last week as we encountered the story of Pentecost, then the temple and the law are obsolete. It's not a history lesson. Stephen is inviting his accusers into the story that has taken hold of his heart and his life, the story that he's living out. We say that all the time. Much smarter people than me, writers, uh, Pete Hughes quoted it during the week. The fact that the story you live in is the story that you live out. Your view of the world as it's created, your view of you as you are created, your view of what this all is about, of what this all is for. The story that you are living in is the one that you'll live out. And Stephen is the most incredible demonstration of what it means to live in the God story. He's pointing them to Jesus. Everything they were looking for in the law and the temple and ritual and rules, it turns out, was right in front of them. And they missed it. He is here. I need to tell you this morning that you have nothing to prove. And you have nowhere else you need to be. Don't miss him. This is your invitation today into the story, the great story of creation to recreation, of our brokenness being found in his beauty, of his sacrifice, his life, his purpose, his story. This is your invitation to to get invested in that story today. Don't miss it. First of all, this is about story. But second, this is about the storyteller. It's about the storyteller. These are these last verses again. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were still stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. It's at this point where we get to look full at the storyteller, don't we? It's this little section where it feels like we're like zoomed in, cropped in, like we've got him now in sharp focus, looking at what happens in the last moment of his life. And growing up in youth groups and youth weekends or festivals, right, passages like this cropped up all the time, right? And some youth leader would get up at the end and say something like, don't you want the faith like that, right? To which the 14-year-old version of me was like, mate, he just got stoned to death. Of course I don't want the faith like that, right? It kind of seems obvious to take one look at what happens and go, no, I mean, there's lots of things I want, but I don't want that, right? And that's the thing about faith very often. We want the auntie and uncle version of faith, don't we? 
Like that's what we want. By that I mean the joy of being an auntie and uncle is that you're able to have all the fun and do all the fun stuff and life-giving stuff and good stuff with your nieces and nephews. And then at the end of the day, whenever you've riled them up that you've got them so excited that they'll never sleep, you just walk away, right? You want the auntie and uncle version. We want the fruit of our faith, the high points, the purpose, the meaning, the presence, the community. And then we easily feel like checking out whenever things get tough. But not Stephen. And for that, the end is brutal. He's stoned to death. Frederick Buchner says this of his stoning. Stoning somebody to death, even somebody as young and healthy as Stephen, isn't easy. You don't get the job done with a few rocks and broken bottles. Even after you've got the man down, it's a long, hot business. It's not easy. It's not slow to stone somebody to death. And in the church alive, Stephen is the first martyr, right? But the question is kind of, how do we, how do we even end up here? Like, what, what happened here? Well, we know that he'd been saying things that offended some camps, right, within the religious groups. And in the end, those words of 51 to 53 were probably enough to get the job done, right? Because when you say, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised, you're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicated, who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through angels, but you have not obeyed it, right? He's saying, you resist the Holy Spirit. You killed Jesus. You received the law, and you don't even know how to obey it, right? In a sense, that'll do it, right? That'll kind of seal your faith, or faith, uh, your faith when you're in front of a jury, right? That'll get whatever worst that wants to happen, that'll get it over the line, right? But it's interesting who accused him in the first place. This is what it said in verse 9. Opposition arose from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as provinces of Cilicia and Asia. Freedmen. Freedmen where this was a synagogue that was made up of those who had quite literally been freed from slavery. People who had endured the horrors of a life in bondage, who had been set free. It was freed slaves, and it was their descendants. And the other people from Cyrene and Alexandria, Cilicia and Asia, right? These were people who lived as Jews in the far-flung places of the Roman Empire who had now come to live in Jerusalem. These were freedmen and frontiersmen. These were not evil people. These were not people living outside of the religious establishment. These were faithful people. These were good people, probably. These were people faithful from far off places and from painful backgrounds. Why do I say that? I say that because people like that often have a strong identity, right? People that have been through really difficult things often have a strong sense of identity, don't they? They had to. I mean, to maintain any kind of Jewish identity from the corners of the empire meant it had to be seared into them against the constant threat of being destroyed or diluted. People don't like you if, in this time of, of, the, of the world. If you're Jewish and you're living in the far corners of the Jewish world, they don't like you. So your identity has to be like seared into your heart. Maintaining faith on the frontiers is hard. Life is always lived in the tight space between fear and faith on the frontiers. 
the temple, the covenant, the law, the things that they thought of as so important, they feel very, very far away from the far corners of the world. And that's why Stephen was such a threat. Because they thought he was speaking against the things that they'd been holding on to, just clinging on to so very tightly. And now they thought he wanted to tear them up and throw them out. So it was they who accused. It was they who schemed. It was they who threw the stones. Here's the thing. Of all the narratives around the church in this last 18 months or so, one that is constantly in my feed, it's actually in billboards outside numerous churches, is about this stuff of living in fear versus living in faith, right? We hear it all the time right now, right? As if getting the vaccine, wearing a mask, being sensible, following guidelines and being cautious is an indication of life being lived with fear, right? Because of course it's not. Or a faithless life, masking up means you don't have enough faith or whatever, right? It's bizarre. Because the bottom line is, here's the thing. Our Christian faith lived in our world today is always lived in the tight space between fear and faith, isn't it? Being honest with yourself. Our Christian faith in the world today is always lived in that tight space between fear and faith. We live in the questions in our life as to whether we'll have enough faith for what faces us today whether we'll have enough faith for our struggles with our mental health, whether we'll have enough faith for what's going on in our families, whether we'll have enough faith for battles with illness, enough faith for successes and enough faith if I fail. The only thing that stops all of that caving in on us is not grit and determination and how strong you are and how often you go to church and how many books you consume and what podcasts you're listening to. None of that is what will stop it caving in on you. The only thing that will stop it caving in is the Holy Spirit. And Stephen shows us how. These are Jesus' words to the disciples in John 14. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. All we have is the Holy Spirit. And living between that tight space of fear and failure that I know marks all of our lives, All we have is the Holy Spirit. And Stephen is the picture of what happens when the Holy Spirit has taken hold of someone's life and filled them up. Our perspective shifts. This is what it says. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, right? That's a number of times it's said it throughout this passage. Full of the Holy Spirit. Looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand and said, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. We talked last week about, about Pentecost and the sense of it being the collision of the two worlds. Here's the reality. This is what it looks like, right? Because this is what he's seeing. This is what Stephen is saying. This is what he's speaking out. On earth, Stephen is about to be stoned to death. In eternity, in the place where his heart lives, Stephen has a vision of Jesus. There's some part of you that's like, are you serious? Like, no way. The guy has been accused. He's been dragged from the city. He's about to be killed. And that's what he sees? Accused, schemed against, 
reputation questioned, seized, charged, and now killed alone. In many ways, that's all the world had to offer him right then. But in the other, he was known. He was vindicated. He was free. He was met by Jesus, the advocate. This is the old world and the new world. This is how they meet. This is that collision we're talking about, right? And with our faith, we have to work so very hard not to live a life dominated and dictated by the old world, don't we? It's in every aspect of our lives, right? Those that threw stones that day were faithful people, but the reality is for all of us, we all throw stones in our lifetime, don't we? The thing is, they're heavy stones, and carrying them around is exhausting. When we live as just a contributor to a culture of outrage and cancellation, of unforgiveness, of me-centeredness, where my value is just what others say it is, where my identity is more a child of popular culture than a child of God, then I am carrying heavy stones. And the reality is, usually I end up throwing them at someone. When we are called to be new world, with new perspective, with new values that lives beyond just what is before us, even if it hurts. I doubt most of us will ever live under the threat of being stoned to death in our lifetime. I doubt that we will. I hope that most of us will never know that in our lives, right? But all of us will know suffering in our lives, won't we? It's an unavoidable reality of the human condition. And here's the thing, even in the new world, right? Even in the world, the picture of this new church coming alive, the Holy Spirit poured out, rapid growth, all of that stuff, even in the new world, we'll still know sorrow. Chapter 8, verse 2, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. I love the Bible because it doesn't gloss the human condition. It doesn't gloss what most of us know and have lived in and are living through. The new world and the age of the spirit will still be a place where we will know sorrow and suffering and pain and still call us to follow Jesus right through it. I hear so often, you know, the message that if Jesus is in something, it'll be easy. And I want to like smash things and say, are you kidding me? When has anything that Jesus has ever provoked and prodded you and led you to do been easy, right? I know the reality in my life of things where when Jesus is in it, opportunities come and doors open and things like that happen, right? I get it and I get all of that narrative. I've lived in it too. The reality is though, walking through it usually costs you something. Living in this world is hard. Following Jesus is hard. And ultimately, the Bible shows, our lives show, this church community shows that faithful living is often painful living. Where faithful living doesn't escape suffering, but it encounters it, encounters him in it. We were never called or promised a suffering-free life. That's not the gospel. That's not the message of the Bible or the early church. That's not the vision of the church alive. Living as a follower of Jesus means living through suffering and pain. And as always in moments like this, one of my go-to authors is Eugene Peterson. He wrote this, uh, which spoke spoke with weight to me on this topic this week. We speak our words of praise in a world that is hellish. We sing our songs of victory in a world where things get messy. 
We live our joy among people who neither understand nor encourage us, but the content of our lives is God, not humanity. We are not scavenging in the dark alleys of the world, poking in its garbage cans for a bare subsistence. We are traveling in the light toward God, who is rich in mercy and strong to save. It is Christ, not culture, that defines our lives. It is the help we experience, not the hazards we risk, that shapes our days. If you are here today and you're following Jesus, then I have no doubt that you will have known pain and suffering and challenges in your life. If you have not yet, you will know them at some point in your life. Know that in them you are not abandoned. Like Stephen, right at the moment when the stones are thrown, he has a picture of Jesus right beside him. The one who vindicates him even though he was accused. The one who gives him life even though he was about to know death. The one who promises eternity even though his moments on this earth are about to end. For Stephen, the first martyr in the church alive, this was first of all about story. The story that you live in is the story that you will live out. The story starts with creation, which is good. It doesn't start with the fall, right? The first message in your life is not that you're a sinner. The first message in your life is that you were created. And that means you have identity, you have purpose, you have shape, you have form. But then, yes, there is the fall. We sin, we mess stuff up. Thankfully, Jesus comes, lives the cross. We are able to find our sins met by his grace. And then he rises from the dead, which is the most astonishing promise for our lives, that there is new life available to us. That in this next season, we partner with him in his purposes of new creation, of recreation in this earth before the new creation finally comes. It is from creation to new creation you live. And the story that you live in is the story that you will live out. And secondly, this is about the storyteller, about the picture of someone so immersed in the new world that even as the old world queued up to stone him in that day, he lived out his last moments with Jesus in view. His was a faith, not trying to escape suffering, but one that encountered Jesus right through the center of it. This is about story and about storyteller. And in the church alive, we need both. We need both. The reality is one of the more difficult moments in the book of scripture to read is the moment that the church soon launches from there and spreads to the rest of the earth. This was its moment. We need story and we need tellers.